to a good conversation. My name is Stephanie. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Mill City. I see a few new people that I've never seen before. Welcome to Mill City. We're so glad that you're here. Um, I am excited today. We're going to be finishing up a conversation, but I, I do want to say to everybody that I hope you are having a good Labor Day weekend. I know everyone doesn't have tomorrow off, but it is a heartbeat of our church that you know that the work that you do is really important. And we believe that it's important to God. So as we think about Labor Day and, and all the labor that we all do, all the vocational callings that everyone has, we just really believe that everything that we do can be done unto the Lord and that God cares about all the work that we do in every industry. And so we're so grateful for the ways that you all go and be the church in all of those different spaces throughout our city and throughout the world and online and all the things that you all do. So we're so grateful for that. We're going to finish a conversation today called Everyday Ways to Talk About God. Everyday ways to talk about God. And the reason we're having this conversation is a few different things, but one of them is that we read a study that the Barna organization did just a, maybe a year and a half ago where they did some research on spiritual conversations and how often people are having spiritual conversations. So here's just two of the many statistics that they found, okay? So we'll put them on the screen. The first is that 7% of Americans report that they have spiritual conversations regularly. 7%. And then 13% of those who say they attend church regularly say that they have a spiritual conversation about once a week. And this feels important to us to think about the fact that our spirituality, much less our relationship with God, is so central to who we are, yet when we don't talk about those things, what does that mean is kind of what we're bringing up. Here's one more result of the survey that I'm going to go out here and say that I find startling, okay? This is a startling result of this survey. Those who are on what is considered the polars of politics, we know what that means, right? Those who are considered on the polars of politics report that they have significantly more spiritual conversations than the 80%, 85% of what I like to call the messy middle. The messy middle has significantly less conversations about spirituality and who God is and what it means to them than the people on the polars. This just feels important to me that we consider what it means to be people who figure out how to talk about something that matters to us. So here's kind of my, my big idea for this whole conversation as we wrap it up. That there, if we want to grow in our relationship with God, if we want to be able to share it with other people, if we want to help our friends or our kids understand why we follow Jesus, then we have to be able to talk about it. We have to be able to talk about it. So, so here it is. We can't deepen our relationship with God grow in our faith, share our faith, talk about it with our kids. We can't do any of that if we can't talk about it. So that's why we've been saying, what does it mean for us to figure out everyday ways to talk about something that matters to us in very different ways? So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here together. We don't take it for granted that we get to worship freely here in this public school. And God, right now, I pray for all the teachers and the faculty and the staff that are going to be coming on Tuesday and all those kids as they begin another school year. God, I know there's teachers right now who are in their classrooms getting prepared, and we saw them this morning, and we thank them for the work that they're doing. And God, we pray for them. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here with us right now, but God, that your Spirit would remain in this place so what, when those kids come to school on Tuesday, when those teachers come, that there would be a, something different because you're here and because you make a difference in their lives. Once again, God, we're humbled to be able to worship here, and we ask, God, that you'd speak to us today, that we would be people who encounter you through your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so community time question I gave was a memorable road trip. I think road trips were on my mind because I did do a couple this summer, and summer feels like an opportunity for lots of road trips. Who went on a road trip this summer? More than an hour. 
a few more of you. Yeah, come on. More than an hour in my mind is a road trip. So some of you are like, that's how long it took to get to church this morning, but that's not true for me. So I'll share a memorable road trip because of the question. So three years ago this week, my husband and I drove my friend Kara's car from here out to San Francisco, California. We were engaged at the time. I don't remember why she couldn't drive her own car. She had to be there early or something. But her car is full of stuff, and we're crammed inside of it, and we're not, we're, we're not the smallest humans. And so we're driving all the way from here to California as engaged people, engaged to be married. And what I will say is I could tell you lots of stories about why it was memorable, but what's important to know is that we were still engaged at the end of that road trip. And that it was close. It was close. There was a couple memorable moments that would or could have resulted in the engagement not continuing to be engaged. So that is a memorable road trip for me. And I thought about that and I thought about how today I want to end this conversation, Everyday Ways to Talk About God, with Everyday Ways to Talk About the Church. And when I think about the church, I think about how uh, one of the the experiences I've had, many experiences I've had, maybe many experiences that many of you have had, uh, remind you of maybe a road trip where you weren't totally sure you wanted to stay in the car. You know, some of us have had those experiences with the church, what it means for us to be a part of a community of Christians over the years. Some of us uh, have had those times when we thought, is there a way to get out of this right now? And maybe some of you haven't had that experience. But I think it's important to recognize that reality. But here, many of you, you're all here at least this week in a school, but we are gathering as part of the church And so you're at least engaged still in some way, okay? And so you're in the trip, you're on the journey, and you're still engaged, and you're still here. But for some of us, I know uh, it's been close. It's been a close call. And maybe has been a time when you got off and out of the road trip and back in, and I get that. I think there's many reasons that we've had, some of us, tenuous or rocky relationships with the church. Um, But I know from experience that there's one main reason, and that is that the church is made up of humans, that's the main reason that we've had hard and tenuous and rocky experiences with the church. It's made up of humans that are messy, that are broken, that, that hurt each other at times, uh, that hurt themselves, and that impacts the rest of each other, right? My dad was a pastor, and he always said this groaner of a joke. He always said, if you're looking for a perfect church and you find it, it won't be perfect anymore because now you'll be there. I know, it's the worst. <laughs> it's obviously, if you don't get the joke, it's because you're imperfect and you're there. All right, you get what I'm saying. Uh, So I have just an equally as terrible statement that I've made over and over. Some of you have heard me say this, and it goes like this. If If you want to go to a church that's all people who believe the same things as you and agree with you and never hurt you, you will have to be a church all by yourself. (laughs) Because the reality is, is that when other humans are in the mix, that's the reality of the experience. Everybody doesn't agree. We don't all believe the same things, and we sometimes hurt each other. And this idea of being a church all by yourself is a choice that some people have tried to make. Maybe some of you have experienced that as well. But both of these statements, my dad's groaner statement and my groaner statement, uh, kind of bring to the surface this reality that we are messy and complex people. We don't have it all together. Last week we talked about how we might pursue pursue truth and pursue God's truth. We are finite humans, and so we're never going to be able to say that we understand it all and that we've got it and that we get it more than anybody else. We have to be humble. But man, is it a messy thing for us to try to do. So I think it's, it seems like pertinent for us to say, okay, think about right now, all of you, the ways you've heard people talk about the church, maybe particularly people outside of the church um, who maybe don't consider themselves a part of the church. 
I've heard a lot of different things as I listen to people. Of course, whenever somebody asks me the question, what do you do, could be a very interesting conversation. Um, so I've heard a lot of things. I feel like uh, what I often hear is people refer to the word the church as a building and the amounts of buildings that are churches around, religious buildings. I've heard people talk about it as just like a religious practice, a thing that people do regularly as a part of the rhythms of their life. I hear a lot of people talk about how the church is a group of people that subscribe to a certain political agenda. That's a perception that a lot of people have of the church. And I have also heard people say that the church is the people who all agree with that same belief set. They all agree with all the same things. So as people who are at least part of a church right this, this moment, we know that these things have various truths and various untruths about them. But today, I don't necessarily want to talk about those things. I just want to say, well, then let's talk about what it is, all right? I want to do two things. I want to define, at least for today, what I mean by the church. If we're going to figure out everyday ways to talk about it, let's try to define it. And then I want to use three metaphors to give us a picture of the church because I feel like while metaphors aren't perfect, it gives us some language to use because the whole point is that we'd be able to talk about this with people in our lives who maybe are, consider themselves a part of the church or not, right? So, two things. Define it and three metaphors. Cool? I know it's a holiday weekend. You with me? I got my amen corner right here. Thank you, Ramon. Okay. So, to start off, I want to give us our little glimpse of our favorite, my favorite moment, seminary for everyone. I get to teach at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, and so I have some really smart students. But everybody I've met here is just as smart as my students, and so that's why I'm like, here, you guys can understand this. So, seminary for everyone. The study of what the church is is called ecclesiology, okay? The study of the church. Theology as applied to the nature and structure of the Christian church. So in, in the Bible, the word that is translated into church in English in the New Testament is ecclesia in Greek, okay? Now, the word church is an old English word. The word church is only found in the 4th century and beyond. So that means that its etymology is relatively new compared to ancient Greek, right? So the word in Old English actually means the Lord's house. It comes from that, I think, Dutch, the Lord's house. That's what the word church means. But ecclesia in Greek doesn't actually mean that. What it means, and if somebody were to use it in ancient Greek, they'd be meaning a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place or an assembly. It's an assembly of people. It didn't necessarily mean religious at the time. It meant people who were in their homes, they came out of their homes, and they gathered in a place, and they assembled. And so when the first Christians were starting to do that, they started to say, we're meeting for an assembly, for an, for an ecclesia. And then in scripture, it came to mean the whole body of Christians scattered throughout the earth, whether they're gathering together or not. And I think it's kind of interesting that it simultaneously means gathered and also scattered. You see where that's going there? It means like people who are called out and assembled, but then sent out. So here's my definition just for today. If you want to send me an email with a different version of your definition of church, I will totally read them at some point, okay? So here it is. The whole body of Jesus followers called out and gathered and sent out and scattered throughout the earth to love the world in the name of Jesus. Okay, the whole, the whole body of Jesus followers called out and gathered like we are right now and then sent out and scattered into the world that God loves to love in the name of Jesus. That's my relatively simple ecclesiology. The fact that there's entire classes on the word <laughs> and entire books and entire, entire whole things, like that's, that's pretty simple, so I know that. So send me your long definition in email and um, I'll have the other Steph read it, okay? Great. 
So that's my definition as we go through today. So it seems pertinent to me that we would just look at the very beginning of the book of Acts, which is the beginning of when the church started, as we've come to know it today, when the words ecclesia was really starting to be formed and starting to be used. And I'm hoping that looking at the beginning of the story of the church helps us all, whether we've had a rocky relationship with the church or not, to be able to think about how we might talk about it. And so I'm going to show a three-minute video from The Bible Project. We've shown some of these videos here this summer. You guys, check out The Bible Project videos on YouTube and also their podcast. It's excellent. They're so good. And when you're looking at the video, I want you to pay attention to two things, all right? So the first thing is oftentimes people say the book of Acts means the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the early church leaders. I like to think of it as the actions of the Holy Spirit. So look for the actions of the Holy Spirit in this little short clip. Second, look for the ways that the Holy Spirit is affirming the Old Testament or the history of Israel as is happening in the book of Acts. So look for actions of the Holy Spirit and look for the ways the Holy Spirit is affirming the Old Testament. Can we do that? Three minutes and then we'll continue on. One of the earliest accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and resurrection, was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke, but Luke continued the story in a second volume. Called the Book of Acts, and it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom, the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival it's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world, all these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire, it filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. That was just one pillar of fire, not many. Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They've become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. 
So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. But it wasn't all fun and games. If you have read the book of Acts, then you know why he ends that part of the video with the phrase, it's not all fun and games. But I love the way that he describes it in this video. They were gathering together to learn what it meant to live as though Jesus was the king of the world. And I just want to say, as one of your pastors, that's what we're trying to do here. We're gathering together to try to figure out how we can live as though Jesus was and is the king of the world, which makes a difference when Jesus is the leader over all other leaders. So I want to point out just four things really briefly that I think are important to pay attention to in this passage, okay? The first thing is this. Jesus told them to wait on the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to wait on the Holy Spirit. Let me read exactly what it says from the, from the passage. It says, on one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And he goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. So in the video, you see that, right? They were waiting so that, in my opinion, they wouldn't start running off with their strategic plans, but waited for the Holy Spirit to say, this is what we're going to do. Because when you see what happened, that would not have been anybody's strategic plan. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start speaking in languages that are not our own to the people who are coming, right? That wouldn't have been the plan. I love that. Number one, waiting on the Holy Spirit. The second thing I think to pay attention to is that the church is to be called, to be called out as Jesus' character witnesses in verse, uh, Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this idea of being a witness here, the word here, it's, it's like the witness of, in a trial. Many times in a trial there would be a character witness, right? Who is a character witness? That's a person that can speak on behalf of the person who's on trial because they know them deeply, personally, in reality. And so call, being called out to be witnesses of who Jesus is is about being able to say, I know Jesus personally. I can speak on behalf of his character. That's part of this passage I want us to pay attention to. And then third, I love to use this phrase, God has left the building. God has left the building. So here you see they talked about the tabernacle or the tent. We now know that the history of Israel then was that this, this temple in Jerusalem was where people believed that God's presence was most significantly manifested, was in this temple. And if you wanted to be close to God, then you would go towards this building, towards this temple. And if you were a special person, a priest, then you could go even closer to the center of the building. And if you were the high priest, you could go even closer to the center of the building than that. And that's because the belief at the time was that God's spirit, represented here by fire, was at the very, very center of the temple in what was called the Holy of Holies. And your everyday people were not allowed to go there. But here we see so clearly, and we do in other places in Scripture, that God's Spirit has left the building. 
that this idea of there being one temple is done. Now, the people of God have God's spirit within them, and so they're like little temples walking around. Let me read it the way it is said in Scripture in Acts 2, 1 through 4. This is what you saw in the video. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. They were in a house. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. God has left the building in the sense that while they're together, God's Spirit is there, but while they're scattered, God's Spirit is there too. And they don't have to rely on their own words. I personally have never started to speak in another language to somebody and they understood it like that. But I do know what it's like to not feel like I can rely on my own words but need the Holy Spirit to give me words, to, to find everyday ways to talk about God. And I hope we can rely on God's Spirit as we do that. Okay, fourth and finally, the early church found rhythms of life together. This seems really important. They found rhythms of life together. Let me read Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47. Some of you have read this before. But listen for the rhythms of life together, okay? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That was probably healings that was happening. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you hear lots of rhythms here. If you've been a part of Mill City for a little while, then you've probably heard us talk about the three relationships of rhythms that are super important to us, and we illustrate them with this triangle that Roland will put up on the screen for me. So my friend Mike Breen came up with this idea of thinking about these three rhythms. Notice they're not three separate categories, but they're three relationships that are super important. Right here in this passage, and in so many other places, you see these as the three areas of relationship to focus on. Our relationship to God, our relationship with others in community, and then our relationships with the world and the people that God's called us to love. The up, in, and out relationships of our lives. What do we see here in this passage? The up relationship with God. They're gathering together to learn, to teach, to pray, to praise God together. They're gathering both in the temple courts and also in their homes, gathered and scattered. There is this in relationships and community. What do you see happening? You see they're eating together. They're sharing what they had and supporting each other. And it says they had glad hearts, so I think that means they had a lot of fun together too. And then out. You see this relationship that they have to the people that God calls them to love. Two specific groups are mentioned here. People who have needs, so people who are poor and who don't have their material needs met. And then also all these people that start to join in and start to feel a sense of belonging because they're invited to be a part of what God was doing in and through them. There was no reason that anybody had to be excluded. They could start to join in and it says that God brought people every day to join in to be a part of what was happening. So in my opinion, this is, this is Pastor Steph's opinion, and this is like a big, bold thing to say, okay? I think everybody in the world, whenever it starts with everyone in the world, just take it with a grain of salt, okay? I think everyone in the world is wired to have three desires, okay? There's a lot of desires that we have, but I think there's three main desires that I think my experience, everybody I've ever met and gotten to know, has these three desires, and it's for this. It's for meaning and belonging and for purpose. Meaning, belonging, and purpose. 
And you see how these fit with these rhythms. Can you find meaning, belonging, and purpose in places outside the church? I believe you can. But I think it's important to recognize that when people have these desires, that there is an answer to that that at least we are trying to experience. We're trying to say, hey, look, I want to talk with you about you. I want, I'm actually genuinely curious. Guys, if we could just be genuinely curious with what this looks like for other people before we try to tell them what we think about it for ourselves, hello, like, you know, normal relationships 101. Seek to understand before being understood. You might find out in understanding they don't want to understand you, and then maybe it's not helpful to try to be understood, right? But if you are curious, man, what, what, where do you find meaning in the world? What does belonging look like for you? Where do you feel the most at home in your life? What does it look like for you to feel like purpose? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you going? And for all of us, we probably have multiple things that give us meaning and belonging and purpose. But I would hope that the, the relationships you have with other Jesus followers and the ways that God is leading you out into the world that God loves would be part of these three desires and hopes and maybe even needs in your life. So if we're going to try to figure out how to talk about this in everyday ways, I think metaphors can be helpful. I spent way too much time trying to figure out on the internet if these were metaphors or similes or analogies or illustrations or something. And I can never get those 15 minutes back in my life. So I'm just going to go with their metaphors. I think they are. So I want to give three different metaphors about how we might be able to talk about church. And I actually think it's helpful maybe to to have three because all metaphors or analogies or similes or whatever, they all break down, right? There's not a perfect way for us to describe something as complex, I think, as this group of people. So let's use these three metaphors. I'm not trying to mix metaphors here. I'm just trying to, to give us some ways to think about it. Because when we think about how we might have everyday ways to talk about any of the subjects we've talked about so far, I really feel like the answer is, starts with it depends, right? It depends on who you're talking to, how well you know them, what you know about their context, of course it depends. There's no script. But maybe these three metaphors could help. So the first one is the metaphor of a family. A family. The family of God. You see this throughout scripture. This is a family welcoming to everyone, anyone who wants to be a part of the family. But I do think there's a distinction. We often talk about how God creates people in God's image. That everybody is bearing the image of God. But being in God's family is something that you get to choose. No one's going to force you into that. I think that's important that we don't force anybody into making that choice. But God doesn't want people to be forced into that either, in my opinion. God welcomes people to choose to be a part of the family, to be a child of God. God doesn't love the people that are in the family more than other people. No, because God is capable of that. But God, out of love, doesn't force anybody to be in the family. But I think the family of God is a good way for us to think about it. This family, though, is very special in a very specific way. And that is that the parent in the family, God, the parent is also a ruler or a king, right? Now, we don't talk a lot in monarchy language around here anymore. Um, some of you maybe are a little bit too into the royals in Europe. Don't raise your hand. But I don't understand it. Don't email me about that if you're offended. I'm just saying I don't totally get it. But even in that monarchy, which most would suggest has very little power, although there was a weird incidence this week with that, with the queen, wasn't there? But anyway, there's very little power. But even those little babies... Like, they have to get pictures taken of them, right? These little babies are all of a sudden, like, they're born into a responsibility of looking really good as a little baby and a little boy, right? It's like they're born into the responsibility, even in this kind of uh, watered-down version of a monarchy that we have today. 
And I just tell you this to say, like, you can think about that, right? Like, if you're born into a, a family, a royal family, then you are born into responsibility. Same, too, for the relationship that we have as people who are kids in this family that happens to be a royal family of the reign of God in the world. We are born into responsibility if we choose to be in the family. But it's so key that we remember that relationship is first. Relationship is first. The people, the kids have a special relationship with the king or the queen, right? They have a special relationship, but they also have a special responsibility, like we do, to be people of just like King Jesus, of healing and freedom and love and mercy and truth, all the things that Jesus said he was about, we then get to be in the world that God loves. We also have a responsibility to try to be because we're in that family. But it's so crucial that we remember the relationship first. I've gotten into some awesome conversations in many different places outside of church gatherings um, as I'm trying to be the church wherever I go, being a part of the church. One of them I've shared before is at 56 Brewing. Some of my friends I've made there are so awesome. Um, and they've even come to worship here with us before. And some of those people are people who are Christians and some aren't, but we've had some awesome conversations about what they often call religion, okay? I don't actually have a problem with the word religion, but in a conversation a couple weeks ago, it was so fun. Another guy who is a Jesus follower said, you know, I don't think of it as religion so much as a relationship. Like I have a relationship with God and with Jesus and other people who are trying to do that. And I said, yeah, I agree, I'm with him. <laughs> like that makes more sense. And when you have a relationship with someone that's meaningful to you, you might talk with other people about that because it's meaningful to you. And you might even want them to be in relationship with this being, this person, this relationship that matters to you. But that's different than the goal is to get people into different religions. Right? And so then, of course, we're standing right there and there's all the beers on the wall with all the taps. And I said, for instance, if you really like the new IPA that comes out, confession, I don't really like IPAs. Somebody's offended by that too. I don't want that email either, okay? Just tastes like, like, blah, okay. So, however, hypothetically, if you really liked this IPA that came out, you would tell other people about it. You'd be like, oh man, have you tried it? It's so good. It's more like that, is what I said to this guy. I was like, it's kind of like, if I really appreciate something, enjoy something, it's meaningful to me, I'd want other people that I love to know about it. And he was like, that makes so much more sense then other ways people have talked about religion. Like, my religion is right, I want more people to join my religion, or if you aren't in my religion, something terrible is going to happen to you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He just volunteered all the things that people have said to him. And so that's why I think the relationship is so crucial as the first thing that we talk about. Okay, second metaphor. A vehicle. A vehicle. A vehicle for Jesus' mission and redemption in the world. When we talk about God's people being sent out, I think a vehicle is helpful. It breaks down too, right? But not your, your vehicle doesn't break down, but the metaphor breaks down. I, I picked this as an illustration because I think Mill City is like, if it was a vehicle, it would be like a 15-passenger van with no air conditioning. And, but it's cool because the seatbelts work because we really care about the safety part. And um, the radio station's pretty good. So that's how I think of Mill City, if it was to be a vehicle. But this idea that it's a vehicle of God's mission to the world. Jesus saying that he's about freedom and forgiveness and healing and justice, we go on this road trip and we're headed in that direction. A lot of people that I know have said things like this. God's church doesn't have a mission. God's mission has a church. God has this mission to the world and one of the ways that God is able to live that mission out is inviting human beings to join into it. Newsflash, Jesus could do it without us but chose to let us participate and join in and to get in the van and to be a part of it. But it's so important for us to remember 
that we are people who's, who are sent out in this way. So I think a vehicle is helpful for that. I, I think just a quick story. So Jen Hillier and Eric Furch went to a meeting on Monday for the Sheridan Neighborhood Organization. That's this neighborhood we're in. That's why Sheridan School is named after it. And they got to share at this meeting about how we are trying to put a sound system here in this school. A lot of you know about that because we think that kids in this school should have speakers and microphones that work just like kids in any other school. And we think God cares about that. And so they're going to share this at the meeting. Neighborhood meetings are like 20 people. Well, they're, they're coming to the beginning of the meeting. They're setting up more chairs. A hundred people came because that meeting was about affordable housing in this part of the city, which is really important in this part of the city. But before they got to the affordable housing topic, up pops Jen and Eric to talk about how Mill City Church is trying to do this. And all the neighbors are like, this is awesome. How do we help? We want to help. And the Neighborhood Association gave some money. Some neighbors gave some money to support it because they were like, this matters. This is what it means to be the, the people who are the vehicle of God's mission. I mean, come on. That doesn't make sense that 100 people showed up at that. That's amazing. Like God is leading us to join in what God's already doing. Okay, finally, the third metaphor. A conduit, a conduit. So a conduit, by definition, is a natural channel through which something is conveyed. Sometimes it's water, sometimes it's electricity. Something goes through a conduit. And I love thinking of us as conduits of the Holy Spirit because it puts it back on the, the action of God, right? The Holy Spirit is working through us. God's Spirit is alive in us. God's Spirit doesn't only work through humans, but once again, God chooses to use humans to be a conduit of God's Holy Spirit to the world that God loves. Just on the way here at the coffee shop, Mojo, my favorite, I ran into uh, this woman. I introduced to her for the first time. Her name's Amy Fields. She's the person that started the Northeast Co-op, the uh, Fair State Brewing Co-op, and the Bike Co-op, and Aki's Bread Co-op. She's the person behind all of that. So when I introduced myself to her, someone introduced her, I said, oh, I know who you are. Your fame precedes you. And she said, well, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Stephanie. And the person said, well, she's one of the pastors at Mill City Church. And Amy said, oh man, talk about a church that rolls up their sleeves and gets involved in the neighborhood. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. When we started 11 years ago, our prayer was that we would be people who if our church disappeared, that God would use our church, that if it disappeared, that people would notice in a good way. And she's like, well, that definitely happened. And I was like, no way. I'm on the way to talk about this with my community. God's spirit causes us as a conduit to be little temples, to be Jesus' body and hands and feet of love and justice in the world, to be God's masterpiece. Now I am mixing all the metaphors, right? But this conduit of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit can work through us in the world that God loves, just like a conduit, so that God's love can be experienced tangibly by people. So I think it makes it clear then that the church is not the end goal. Seems like it sometimes, doesn't it? The church is not the end goal. It is the means to an end. Is it a conduit in which God's spirit is bringing restoration and redemption and healing and making wrong things right? And God chooses to use us, God's people, God's, God's family, also sometimes called God's church. So as we conclude, I'll have the band come up. I, I think if we're going to be any of these things, much less be able to talk about it with other people, then we all have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to say yes we have to say, yes, I want to be in God's family. I want to be a child of God. We have to say, yes, I want to be in the vehicle, even if it doesn't sometimes have air conditioning. And I want to be in, in that vehicle, even if the road trip is rocky and I don't always want to be with people that are in there. And even though Jesus is driving and that guy off-roads sometimes, he definitely does. 
And we have to say, yes, I want to be a conduit of God's Holy Spirit. We're going to move into this time of communion and we're going to sing a song after a communion that I hope can be a way that either you can say yes for the first time or the hundredth time because I think it's a constant yes for us. The refrain is based on Micah 6, 8 and it starts with asking God's Holy Spirit to fill us. It says, fill us up and send us out to act justly every day, to love mercy in every way and to walk humbly before you, God. This last picture is what I picture of the conduit of the Holy Spirit filling the earth every tongue and tribe and nation, the global church, gathering even in these next 24 hours, who look different, all shades, all ethnic backgrounds, all part of one family. A whole big, messy, broken, but beautiful family and a family that doesn't agree on everything all the time, that doesn't always believe all the same stuff, that sometimes hurts each other. A family that doesn't, doesn't look the same or talk the same or believe the same, but has the same spirit filling it but has the same God that they are following and they are following the same Jesus to love people in his name. And I think we are invited to be a part of that, amen? As we come for communion, anybody who's seeking Jesus in your life is welcome. We form two lines here. We take the bread, it's gluten-free, dip it into the cup. The bread symbolizing Jesus' body, the blood symbolizing Jesus' blood. And I hope that your prayer can be as you come up to just say to God, fill me up and send me out as the gathered people of God and the scattered people of God in the world that God loves.